0: Good morning. It's a little uh, surreal because I think half of you don't know who I am. And the other half, it's so good to see you. I'm, I'm going to have to see the rest of you too, but maybe we'll meet later. Thanks to uh, Tommy Foreman for helping me. Oh, Tony. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I thought that's the theme we were doing today. Um, <clears throat> that was so embarrassing for you. Uh, It's been 10 years in Laramie, and this is a picture from the snowy mountains where I live. It's a a spot that we hike up to multiple times a year, and I've fished in that spot several times. And it's just, it's really great to be with you all. I walked in, and the, the little table, the red table that's back there, I think the offering box is on. I remember buying that at Pier 1 like 15 years ago. And when we did a Sunday night service and I was the the main speaker at it, I would sit it up my laptop before we had like cool iPads and wireless things because it's been that long ago. And then my laptop would sit there and I would do the teaching with it. And uh, Tony has a love seat in his office that I'm pretty sure both my kids, I have a picture of them somewhere in my journal where they're both laying on that couch with iPods when they're like three and six. Uh, It's just, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing to be back. Uh, Lots of memories, lots of uh, great moments and great times, and but then it's also kind of surreal and sad because we're gone. But it's it's just good to be back. It's good to be back with you all. And so thank you for the opportunity to, to open the word uh, today. We're gonna do don't clap for me. It's not I'm not famous. Um, we are going to we're gonna take a look at Mark at John Mark himself. And we're going to take spend some time in the gospel of Mark, but that's really at the end. Uh, we're going to spend some time taking a look at what happened in the fracture between Paul and Barnabas and John Mark was at the center. And my hope is that we would take some time to see that there are moments in our lives that we should capture. There are moments in our lives that things get tense and things get weird and things can be um, go in a completely different direction than what you thought they were going to go. But if we are stayed, staying rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can get through anything. And then I hope to give you something practical at the end through some pictures and stories of my own life that when tough times come, um, we need to have some anchors. We need to have some things to grab a hold of because there's always going to be tough times. There's always going to be times when we feel kind of crushed by the waves. Um, we don't know what to do. And so when you have a little bit, I mean, as Christians, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't be looking back to the past in guilt and shame. Romans 8.1 tells us that we're there There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Like when you are a child of God and you're captured by grace, there's no more shame. The Father has no animosity towards you because of Jesus. But we need to have some things to hold on to as we walk through this life. So I'm going to pray, mostly for me, because these lights are bright. I can't see your faces very well, and I'm nervous. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time that we have together in your house. Thank you for um, great friends and great church family that was pretty instrumental in me growing into the person I am today and laid some great foundations even for my kids and for my family as we've continued uh, being separated from this place for a decade and continuing on to the future until you call us home to glory. Um, There's some great truth that's been spoken in this place, and I pray that I can help add one more um, moment to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, When you guys were singing, I don't know it's all these stories are flooding my brain of all the dumb stuff that i did in this place Um, i remember uh, some of you might remember tony and nicole Rubel. they were here they left before i did and nicole was a bit of a germaphobe like a pre-covid germaphobe and so she she would sing and i remember doing announcements announcements are always the worst thing for any person to have to do on the stage because you're supposed to be engaging no one's really paying attention um, you're supposed to be kind of funny, but not too funny because no one wants a comedian doing that. And so I remember doing the announcements, and I, I used her microphone because we didn't have a podium mic or anything. I remember turning around, and I licked the microphone, and I handed it to her. And I think only this side over here saw it happen, and she had this look of terror on her face. And I've matured slightly since then, but not a lot. <laughs> um, but all right. The Gospel of Mark—it's uh, one of my favorite gospels. I, I say that all the time. Every book of the Bible I preach through, I say it's my favorite because it usually is at the time. Uh, the last several years in in Laramie, we've preached—we still just preach through books of the Bible, much like happens here. And so we went through uh, Revelation for about a year, and then the Gospel of John for a year, and then Isaiah for a year, and then we took a smaller chunk in First and Second Timothy, and we're currently in the middle of Proverbs. And Proverbs is fun, but it's also I'll be glad when Father's Day gets here and we can be done with Proverbs for a while because uh, it's, it's all these snippets and snapshots of what to do and what to look at and how we should live our lives, and it's beautiful. But the Gospel of Mark is always something, a gospel that I've always loved to hang out in. Uh, it's the, I preached it here probably 15 years ago on a Sunday night, um, and then it was the first book of the Bible I preached in Wyoming because the church just needed to sit In the Word. They had a lot of uh, problems, a lot of issues that happened at the church, and they just needed to know the love of Jesus found only in the gospel. And so, when Tony, we talked about coming and visiting and hanging out with the yohos and um, the opportunity to come and speak, and I had just finished reading through the gospel of Mark again and landed in that last passage where you, you see that John Mark got scared out of his clothes, literally. And the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it just—I was sitting in it and dwelling on that, and what leadership lessons we can learn from John Mark. And so that's where we're going to kind of hang out. We'll—we'll we'll get there. We're going to be in the Book of Acts, but we'll get to the Gospel of Mark in a minute. So what we see, we introduce this character John Mark, which I don't know if you—he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. Um, he was the—he—the the Gospel of Mark is the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So we're going to talk about this fracture that happened between Paul and between Barnabas over John Mark. But because of that fracture, we have the gospel of Mark. When you read the gospel of Mark, you're reading the eyewitness testimony of Peter, the rock, and then, but it's taught, it's written down and recorded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John Mark. And we wouldn't have the gospel of Mark if it wasn't for this fight that we're going to talk about. The first introduction that we see of Mark outside of the gospel is in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So we see that there was this house that the disciples went to. They hung out in, and that's where John Mark lived, in this house where the disciples were in and out. They're teaching around him. He's really inundated with the truth of who Jesus is. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get there in a minute. But he's, he's all around the disciples. His whole life has just been built up from his young as a young man, and later on into his life, he's just surrounded by the truth of Jesus. So we see that he's in the house, hanging out with all these disciples. Then he gets invited to come along and go with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. In verse 25 of Acts 12, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So he's mentioned as a companion with Barnabas and Paul. So John Mark is hanging out with Paul and Barnabas. What a Amazing group of men to be discipling you, right? They go on a missionary journey together in Acts chapter 13. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So he was considered a helper, a powerful part of this ministry. And then there's this split that happens. They go on a missionary journey together. And by all accounts, it seems like not very many people were saved on this first missionary journey. And we're stepping into assuming a lot of things. But John is not real happy with the situation, and a disagreement arises between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Now Barnabas, Acts 15, 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So Mark has a problem. He's not really wired to be a missionary, at least at this point. But he sees all of the great things that are happening with Paul and the sharing of the gospel and strengthening, encouraging, and building churches. And he's been around this whole crew of lovers of Jesus for most of his life. And he wants to be a part of that story, but I don't think he was really wired for that. And so then a disagreement happens between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, the backstory is Paul, We, if you know anything about Paul or been around church at all, he is this firebrand master theologian, writer of half the New Testament. He's kicking down doors. He's going to churches. He's writing all this stuff. He's beaten within an inch of his life twice and drug out into the city and he comes back. And like he's... he's a he's like a guy from Wyoming just tough just like me and but he's different than John and John Mark wants to be part of this but he's just not equipped and so there's a disagreement and John Mark wants to go back home so he goes back home and Paul sees it as a slight he sees it as he's not good enough he's not strong enough he's not and so he and Barnabas have this argument which is really sad because Paul and Barnabas were thick as thieves Paul, if you remember, has his road to Damascus experience. He's, he encounters Jesus, and then he's immediately blinded, and he sits in a, a location outside Galatia, and then his, the scales are removed from his eyes. And for three years, we know that he's relearning, essentially, the Old Testament that he knew so well. He's relearning it through the lens of Jesus as the Messiah. And after that three years of sitting in a, on a mountain space and relearning the truth of Jesus through the lens of Christ as his savior, he then goes and encounters the disciples and they're terrified. Here comes Paul, the great persecutor, and Barnabas, who spent all this time with him in those moments, vouches for him and says, no, you don't know Paul. He's the real deal. He's repented. If we're people of grace, we should forgive each other. And so he steps in that gap for Paul. And Barnabas and Paul are tight. But we know from Colossians that John Mark and Barnabas are related. And so Barnabas sees in John Mark what he saw in Paul. And Barnabas is the great encourager. He's like, I know John Mark has got a little timid. He, he ran out of his clothes in the garden. We'll get to that in a minute. It's a great story. And But I see him. He can do great things. He can do great things. And Paul isn't having nothing to do with it. And so there's this horrific split between Paul and Barnabas. Now, I'd like to say that in a couple thousand years, church people still get along better than that, but we don't. We're the first people to eat our own. We're the first people to throw judgment and condemnation at each other, even though we're supposed to be the people of grace. We're supposed to sit at the foot of the cross. We're supposed to say, hey, we love each other and we disagree, but because of Jesus, we're going to get together because we might have differences of opinion. We might have differences of doing things, different ways of functioning as a society together, but Jesus brings us all together. I wish that was always the case. We still have people that fight over philosophy of ministry and what you should do or shouldn't do, or, you know, I don't think there's ever been a fight over the basketball carpet in here, but probably if there was to be a purchase of new chairs, you ask 10 people opinions, what color of the chairs should be, you get 10 opinions, and then everybody's mad because you did something that they didn't agree with, and we lose complete sight of the mission. We lose complete sight of the mission of the gospel being known. That Jesus is all that matters. And Paul and Barnabas broke over that. And I don't know who was right or wrong. I don't know. Thankfully, we see the rest of the story. They finally come back together. But there's this separation. Now, in the beauty of God's glory and his plan, in that separation, that's when John Mark hangs out with Peter for about 13 years. And he writes the gospel of Mark. If we didn't have this split, if we didn't have this separation, if we didn't have this tension in relationship, we might not have the gospel of Mark. So even though in the moment, in the thick of the moment of what you're dealing with, it feels terrible, it feels destructive, it feels like there is no hope, Jesus, even in our disagreements, even in the stuff that's not of God, that's not his will, it's not his plan, it's all our own sin, God can use it for his glory if we would just open up and listen, if we would just have a little more grace for each other. Thankfully, Mark was welcomed back to this crew. He was welcomed back into this family. And then we see a split in this missionary journey where you have Paul taking Silas and Barnabas taking John. And so this missionary journey, is supposed to be all of them going to one place, now becomes two. And now you have the gospel being spread in two locations. So even in our stupidity, even in our flesh, God can use it for his glory. We just got to get out of the way. Thankfully, we see in Dr. Foreman, is it Philemon or Philemon? Philemon, okay. I'm never going to call him doctor instead of front of you, because <laughs> anyway. Um, we see Paul write... Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So when he writes, Paul writes this letter, he's saying that John Mark is with them. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in ministry. And this is, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. It's his last goodbye to Timothy, his son of faith, saying, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm not getting out of this this is the end. And he says, bring my books, which is always a good thing. Bring my books. Got to have my books. But he says, bring Mark. If if that tension hadn't been resolved, you don't say words to, in a letter, saying, hey, Timothy, bring John Mark because I still hate the guy's guts and he's still a coward. They've reconciled this relationship. They've worked hard to come back together. And so Paul says, please bring him. Please, Please bring John Mark. I long to see him. We know That John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, and at the end of Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, Mark writes about himself. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he let the linen cloth, he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. So what's happening is they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers are coming. John Mark is there. He's there with Jesus. He actually was there in the garden with Jesus himself before he's about to be arrested. So he had a personal relationship with Christ in flesh that Paul didn't even have. He encountered him on the road to Damascus. He encountered him and had a relationship with Christ in those moments, but he didn't touch his flesh, break bread with him. He wasn't there. John Mark was there. And he writes about himself in the Gospel of Mark that he was so scared he ran for his life and they grabbed his linen, they grabbed his underwear. And it ripped off on the way out, and he runs out of the garden naked. Now, this is a whole no. this is an aside. Um, if you're going to write a fanciful story and make it up, if you're going to write something that's not true, you as the author don't write that you were scared out of your clothes. If you go into a meeting and you're so terrified you run out of your clothes, that's a bit embarrassing. Imagine if that happened in a, a meeting here of the leaders of the church. You walk in, you're terrified, and you run out, and they can grab you and you run out in your clothes. That would be the, kind of the talk of the church, wouldn't it? Probably, maybe not. Nobody, you guys are okay. It's less change in 10 years. You're okay with public nudity. It's, it's a whole other thing we'll address later. But John Mark runs out of the garden. He's terrified. If you're going to make up a story, you're gonna make yourself look good. You read through the gospels. If you are on the fence or you've got some tension about can I believe in the reliability of the scriptures? Is this really true? Read how the disciples describe themselves and what a disaster they are in their faith while also trusting in Jesus. If you're going to write an autobiography about yourself, you leave out all of those details. If you're trying to start just a movement that's not true, you're not going to put that in there. You're not going to put, hey, I hang out with Jesus, and I was so scared I ran out of my clothes. You're not putting that in there. It's just those little things, like if you would just engage your brain and use a little bit of logic, you would see some of the truth that comes out of the Bible that we just kind of miss, and people try to make fun of it and pass over it. The Bible is 100% reliable. That was free. Okay, Now, how do we be people? And this is what I want to talk about mostly. That was the beginning. We got 35 more minutes. Um, We're going to eat lunch at one together. Is that what we're doing? Okay. Chad didn't like that idea. How do we as people of God not have those kinds of fights? How do we as people of God hold tight when things are disastrous? Like in the last month... um, I, in, our, in a little town of Laramie, Wyoming, we, don't, we have one funeral home. And there, there's a lot of people in Laramie that aren't people of faith. And so the funeral home that we, I share, our church shares a chain link fence with the funeral home. So I can just hop the fence and go talk to the funeral director. And she has all kinds of situations where there's people that have no body of faith, there's no pastor to lead them, there's no one to help in this situation. And so I probably do a couple funerals um, a month, and sometimes it's more, where people just don't have any faith background, they have no pastor, they have no church, and so I just step into that situation with them. And in the last few weeks, I've been part of um, a young man that took his own life and cared for that family. Um, there was an older gentleman that died of uh, he was just sick, and then there was another young man that was in a car wreck. And there's all of these, I, I, I'm not surrounded by grief and tragedy like that, but it, it, as a pastor, it hits you in the face. And so I watch people's lives, and I watch people's families, and when they have a faith foundation, a faith background, it's much different than when they have no background. The families grieve different, the families just have a different reaction, there's a different kind of hope. When you have hope that Jesus is real and there is a heaven, there's, it's a whole different grief process. So how do you stay true to when that when you're when the rug is pulled out from under you? When you get the cancer diagnosis, when someone passes, when you get laid off, when marriages explode, when your kids are not where you want them to be, where how, how do you how do you hold fast to the truth? Because when your whole life is exploding in that moment, how do you hold fast? Well, I'm glad you asked. We see Paul and Barnabas lose sight of that holding on tight. I don't know which one should have flexed first or which one should have given first, but they didn't hold fast to the mission. They didn't hold fast to the truth. They were worried about, we've got this program, we were going on this trip, we've got all the logistics planned, we're going. And Paul says, I'm not going to bring John Mark because we're not wasting money on him or time on him because he's just going to cave. And Barnabas says, "But we can do it. And they split. They come back together, thankfully, but how, how in that moment could they have held on tight? We see a tradition in the Old Testament of making a monument. We see that when something major happens, they would build a monument. They would make a, a space in their house. They would make a space on where, the location in which it happened, and they would build a monument. And so that was a place to remember. Uh, I use a, I'm a, I can't read my own writing because I'm really sloppy in penmanship, and so I have an app on my phone, <clears throat> it's called Day One, and it's a journal app. And you can take a picture and it puts the time in, you can journal in it, you can write in it, you can have multiple journals. I have one that's just the kids and family and events, and the other is a prayer journal. And then when I, I I'll show you some pictures in a second, but when I had the opportunity to go to Israel and Jordan a couple of years ago and go to some archaeological sites, I tagged everything in the day. And so what happens for me is every day when I open it up or I look at my phone, it has like, on this day for the last 12 years. And so I get to see my kids and when they were little, I get to see stuff that's happened. I get to read prayers of things that I was praying for at the time. And they're just constant reminders that God is with me. They are constant reminders of all the good and the bad and everything in between. And I might not be building towers all over Wyoming, but I have this daily reminder that God is good. My family is good. There is a mission before me that's more important than my pettiness, and it matters now there are not monuments that are that are cultural monuments that are stuck in the history of our minds that that we see and that bring us back to those places too uh, I had the there's a seminary there's a church with a seminary in it in Laramie, and part of their curriculum was that every seminary student from If you're 18 to 30, however old you are, you're required to take a trip to Israel in the middle of the first year. Um, It's part of the curriculum. You cannot get out of it because what they found is over the years, most people don't make a trip to Israel to see all the places of Christ until they're almost retirement age. And that one of the best things to do to have a solid foundation in your faith is to see these things in it before you are much older because then you have this foundation. And so when people come to you and they question and they say things, you're not shaken. Uh, Eli, who's going to be a senior next year. He's going to do the Bible Institute. It's an early morning part of this program. From 6 to 745, he'll go through the Bible in a year with some seminary professors teaching him. And then if everything works out, he, I'll take him to Israel and to Jordan over Christmas break, right before Christmas break. Because as he goes off to college as a freshman and he encounters all kinds of people that would deny The truth of the scriptures, he'll be able to look a professor in the face and go, well, actually, I was there, and you know what you're talking about. Actually, I've been in that space, and it's, you don't know what's really going on. And so, um, I was able to go, a couple years ago, we went to Israel, (coughs) sorry, one year, and the next year, they expanded the trip into Jordan. Um, And this is, this is a picture of the Dead Sea looking from um, Sodom. And this is, is a picture of me standing at Gomorrah. And so we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin of people against God, and we know that he purged it with fire from the sky. Um, We had a a seminary professor, a geologist from Cedarville, was with us on the trip, and he just stood at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's like, oh, yeah, I wonder if anybody's ever done an archaeological dig on the volcanic activity in this area, because you can see the clear lava plume, and this is where it flowed. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense that fire would come from the sky, because I bet you there's a volcano in that hillside that destroyed all this. And we're all standing there, really? Oh, yeah, it's clear as day. Why would anybody deny it? And you stand at Sodom, and you take your foot, and you rub it in the dirt, and it's all ash. Thousands and thousands of years later, it's still an ash pile that was burned up so many years ago. But most people don't go to Jordan. You don't vacation there. If you do, you go to Petra and you play like it's Indiana Jones and then you move on to another space. This is just a site along the Dead Sea where the tour bus rolls up, we jump out, and we just go climbing in the hills. That doesn't happen on, on tour guide trips, but we got to go there. there. Nothing's built there. It's prime real estate. There are two river valleys that run right beside it. There, you should build on top of this. In Israel, everything is built on top of. You have a rock foundation, there's not a lot of lumber, and so when you, something collapses, you just build right on top of it. And you just build on top of it again and again. Here, we would level it, put in some backfill, put some good building dirt on it, compact it, and we would just start over. They, don't, they can't do that there. So for four to, depending on where you wanna land, at least four to 6,000 years, nothing has been built here. Why? It's prime real estate. It's because there's a cultural memory amongst the people there. Don't build there. That place is cursed. Something really bad happened there. It would be like today. You're not going to build on top of the location where the Twin Towers fell. There's a monument there, but you're not going to go build a a skyscraper and have a new office building there, will you? No. Because there's a cultural memory that you don't don't build in that place. So we see monuments everywhere that's not just putting your name on a plaque and putting your name there, but they're, way, they're, they're f- locations and places that bring a memory in us. And I feel that we need, after we see Old Testament teaching of building monuments, I think we need to have those anchors in our faith. So when everything is shaken, you can look back and go, oh, oh yeah. Like walking into this place, I remember coming here 16 years ago and Eli was 18 months old. And I remember going to the upstairs nursery when it was upstairs and Gay Ann was, was the nursery teacher. If you guys remember Gay And Eli, I'm on staff here at the church and I'm like, oh, my son's screaming his head off. I was so embarrassed. And I remember opening the door and kind of shoving him in and shutting the door and standing in the hallway going, do I have to get my kid? Like, I'm new to this place. I don't know. They're, I'm going to be the that pastor with the screaming kids. They're going to hate me. About four weeks of that happened and he settled in. And to this day, we were talking about Gay Ann before we came that she poured herself after her kids are raised out of the house she poured herself into that nursery and was instrumental in my son coming to faith created a space for him to be loved and cared for and when he professed a faith at a very young age Gay Ann knew all about it like she was instrumental in him coming to faith which then became we moved to Laramie Wyoming Savannah uh, has always been she's wired kind of like me I remember standing right about where she's sitting now in Sunday evening services, singing worship with her and whispering in her little three-year-old ear, we love Jesus, don't we? And she looked me dead in the eye and says, I don't. Like, like, oh man, she's really wired. She's going to fight for her faith. This is going to be terrible. Like, oh my gosh, is this girl ever going to know Jesus? Is this, oh, this is going to be bad. We moved to Laramie, and the the church put us in a condo before we could bought a house. We found a house, and they took care of us, and they had to share a room. So Eli's like five, and Savannah's four and a half, maybe six. And they're talking one night, and I'm mad because I'm going up the stairs like, you need to shut your mouths and get to bed. You've got school tomorrow. What are you doing? I'm going to lay the law down. And Eli is up there sharing the gospel with Savannah. And for weeks, they had been talking about Jesus every night. And in that moment, like I'm, ready, I'm throwing the door open ready to yell, and he's like, Dad, Dad, Savannah loves Jesus. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, we need to, do, we need to talk about this. We need to have some prayer in this, and I'm weeping, and I'm like, this is amazing, and I have all these set things in motion. It's gonna, this place is precious to me if the foundation of my son's faith hadn't been laid in that little crying nursery room, if he hadn't had the small group and the friends that we sit with today, I don't know where Savannah would be because Eli's the one that talked to her about Jesus, not me. Like, can you look back and go, Oh, there was pain in that place. There's tension in that place. There's There's dark stuff in this memory, but man, there's so much good. There's so much good. Can you look back and grab those moments? Cause when, when it gets bad, we easily revert back to the pain and the suffering and we don't hold on tight to Jesus. We all saw it. We still we're, we're suffering with it and dealing with it in Laramie. When when everybody got locked down and shut down and everything went sideways, we are still just now seeing the ripple effects of people's mental health after that whole thing went down. It's devastating a whole world. So where's your anchor? What are you holding on tight to? So the last couple months, there's been some stuff pop up in my life, and my kid's life, and it's been pretty tense. And and I've been all over the map, and I've been kind of worried a lot and praying a lot and seeking help a lot. And so there's a place in Estes Park, Colorado. Um, Harbor Ministries is something that I went through while I was here on staff. And then when I left, I'm now in Laramie, and I'm two hours away, and I've become one of the leaders of the ministry. We take men 20 at a time to come to this place, and we do a lot of object lessons, and it's pretty fantastic. So on this spot, this is the alluvial fan. Um, it's a place that's a waterfall in Rocky Mountain National Park. Some of you may have been. Uh, a lot of times there's elk all in that valley, which is super frustrating because since moving to Laramie, I've become a hunter. I'm not a very good one. And when they're all just like on the side of the road and I'm just like, can I poach one real fast? Cause I really like elk meat and they're hard to find, but that's a whole nother story. But up on this mountainside, um, about eight years ago, I was there and it was probably nine. And we had just, we'd been there a year and I started helping this ministry and I was kind of in over my head. Um, I wasn't, I don't know if I was ready or not to be a senior pastor, but I, that's my job that I was doing. Um, there was already tension. There was already stuff happening. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm equipped for this. Maybe I should go back to teaching high school. Maybe I should just go back to that. My history degree is still valid. So maybe I'll just go do that. I, was, I didn't know what to do. I was just kind of in the thick of it. And I remember the teachings of build a monument. And so I hiked up to the top of this mountain. Well, it's not really a mountain, but it's a big hill uh, along the waterfall. And I threw some rocks in the crook of this tree about eight years ago. And I decided that that was going to be a spot that I would revisit as often as I went back to Estes Park, Colorado. This became a spot. And in that spot, I cried out to God, I need your help, I need your guidance, I need you to, to help me through. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't lead people. I don't have it. I don't have, I, you have to help me, Jesus. And so I came off that spot feeling encouraged. And over the years, I visited it over and over and over again. Um, this is two years later. I hadn't moved much. I added another rock. Um, And then I took Eli up there. We went to a trip to Estes Park, and he and I climbed up. Look how cute he is. Um, This was the first trip up. Savannah wasn't really up for that hike at the time, and so we went together, just me and Eli, and I prayed over him in that spot, praying that this would be a spot that he would want to return to, talk to him about the, the promises of God that are made in the Old Testament and how they're kept in the person of Jesus in the New Testament, and just really try to pour into him a little bit in that moment. And then he added that big rock to the bottom because he tried to outdo me. We're slightly competitive in our family, so he was outdoing me. And then a few years later, we took the yohos. They came out for a visit. Doesn't Reese look cute? <laughs> um, and we, so we went up to this spot, prayed for the yoho girls, and prayed for my family and the friendship that was born here so many years ago and continues to this day, and what a support. And loving faith family that I still have today and text messages and running into all of you or coming out for a visit or connecting on an island in the Caribbean. It's just there's there's foundations that we hold tight to that get us through the rough stuff. Uh, I went back there about two months ago. I hadn't been there for about four years. Uh, the, the one year, there was like four feet of snow in May, so you couldn't get up there. Another year, they were reconstructing it after a flood had happened. Uh, one year, there was uh, there's bighorn sheep that hang out on this side of this hill, and so they had it all blocked off. You couldn't get up there. I, I could have snuck up there, but I didn't want to pay that fine. Um, and so I went up there a couple months ago, and that's the spot, and all the rocks were out of it. And I was pretty bummed. It's like, what the heck? Someone tore apart? My monument, like how dare people hate Jesus? Like what is, uh, one year I went up and I found rolling papers under one of my rocks. I'm like, how dare these Coloradan hippies smoke weed around my monument? Like how dare they? And well, so that I took a t- couple steps back and because I'm a nerd and I have that phone app and that journal, I was able to hit the location and find it and they, nobody tore it up, the trees grew. The trees had grown in the natural growth of who they were as trees and then I just rebuilt it. I found all the rocks, I was looking at the picture, and I'm like, oh, that's a rock that was there, oh, that's a rock that was there, and so I just rebuilt the monument. And for me, I sat up there a couple months ago, and I just wept like a baby. There's been so much growth in my faith, in my life, in my kids' lives, and then the waves crashed. The waves just rolled over. And I'm like, I don't know. I felt a little unmoored. I felt like I I didn't know what to do, but I trusted God. And I go up there, and I see this moment, and I'm waiting to see this place that has been so special to me in a place of prayer, and it's all just torn apart. And I had this, I, I wouldn't call it a panic attack, but I had this moment of just tension. Like, Lord, even this is falling apart? Even this is all messed up? And then I took a couple steps back, breathed. Like, oh, no, trees just grow, dummy. And I rebuilt it, and I sat there, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. If I didn't have those anchors in my life, these moments, these places, then it'd be easy to say, why God? Why me? Why this? I can't handle these waves. I can't handle this stuff. But if we have the moments, we have the times in our lives, and we can look back and say, I know that God was there. I know he's got me through this. I don't know what's going to happen now. I'm not sure what's coming tomorrow. But I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is real, that he loves me, that he loves my kids, that he loves my church family. He loves me. I can hold tight. Now, it's not easy. The analogy that I've been sharing for a couple years now at memorial services, and now even in non-memorial services, grief is, is like going to the beach. There are days when you can walk along the sand and the grief just barely hits your feet, and it's kind of pleasant. You can enjoy it. Can even play in the surf a little bit, and there are days when the riptide will just suck you under and will destroy you. There are some days you can jump through the waves, and some days you can ride the waves, and some days you don't want to be anywhere near them because it's going to be devastating. The only way that you can get through those times is if you have the anchor of Christ as your everything. There can be tension in our relationships, friends, family, church family. There can be disagreements. There can be all that. But if Christ is the anchor, if he's the core, you can get through anything. You might not come out unscarred. You might not come out feeling great. But you'll come through it with him as a centerpiece of everything that you are, that's how we make it through. There's a, I'm a chaplain with the police department now too in Laramie, and I do all kinds of stupid things with them just to get them to, to talk to me. So over the years, like I'll go to the range with them, and I can outshoot half the department. And I tell them like, hey, you know, if you just knew Jesus, he'd guide your bullets, and that kind of, you know, just tongue in cheek dumb stuff. Um, last year, I let them tase me. They got new tasers in, and I don't recommend that. It's, it's pretty terrible. Um, Savannah got to witness it. it was, she laughed a lot after that. Like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to build a relationship with these men and women so that when life blows up, they trust me. And I've seen it over and over and over again where they don't have an anchor. And because I'm a goofball and I'm willing to subject myself to stupid things, now they're like, oh, okay, well, I'll talk to Mike. And I, I try to help them have an anchor in their life. Without the, I see it all the time. So my, my question to all of us is you might not feel connected to Christ right now. You might have walked with the Lord for a decade and you feel great, but what happens when the waves crash? And if you're new to faith or you're just hanging out here and someone invited you, I don't believe in coincidence. There, there's divine appointments. There is no happenstance. And if you're here and someone drug you here because, you know, they talked about this extremely wildly handsome man that's going to be preaching today. That's me. Um, Then maybe you're here because you're supposed to take one step closer to the truth. In the training world with those cops, they talk about getting 1% better, whether it's fitness or training or um, situational awareness. They talk about being 1% better each day, that the goal isn't to be the best in their field in a week, and that's not the goal for us. That's why it's called progressive sanctification. You come to faith in Christ, and you're growing more like Jesus each and every day until he either calls you home or he returns. You're not done growing. You don't get to retire from faith. You don't get to retire from service. You don't get to say, I've arrived. Um, You take one step closer. So where are you at? Are you taking steps closer, or have you kind of shrunk back a little bit? Have the, have the waves crashed at your life and you're not really sure what's going on and you're dealing with some stuff that you haven't told anybody about? You need to share that with someone so they can help you. I've seen that tenfold in the last six months. If I didn't have, if, if we, if I didn't have the support around me, I would have, I'd be curled up in a ball in the corner in the fetal position. You have to have people that you open up to and let in on your, in your life to support you, to carry you when you're weak. And you know what happens? You end up doing the same for others. You end up doing the same for others. So where are you at? If faith is something you're just exploring, what would it take for you to take a step closer to Jesus? If there's some silly barrier in your life, you, watched, you made the mistake of watching a YouTube video about how dumb Jesus is or something, you do realize it's YouTube, right? That's not really a scholarly site for academic endeavors or for theological exploration. Like stop. If if you're the people in your life that are speaking the truth to you are on TikTok, grow up. That's not a place to get information. If you've been walking in faith for quite a while, and maybe you feel stagnant, you feel unsure, what would it take for you to take one percent, one step? Closer to Jesus. Maybe you need to spend some time looking at the past. The moments when you know you felt Christ in an overwhelming way, and you need to cling to that and say, I'm not sure what's happening today, but I know. I know he was there. I know he's good. I know he's real. I know he's for me. He's not against me. What would it take? Because if we all are walking on that journey together, we can hold each other up. We can help each other through. We can bring people closer to Jesus because he's all that matters. Nothing else matters except people knowing Christ. What do you need to do to take a step closer?